Several years ago, when we were in El Salvador, our mission team had the opportunity to worship together at this interdenominational, international church in the capital of San Salvador. It was a beautiful, sunny day. The doors and the windows were wide open to the outside, and you could hear the tropical birds singing outside. And they had a wall-length paned window, sort of like what's on our walls here, except it was behind the pulpit, as I said in the first service, which I never think is a great idea because people aren't paying attention anyway, and if you'll give them a window to look out (laughs) behind the speaker, you'll never know that they're not paying attention because they're watching a squirrel or something dangle from a tree. But in this window behind the ministers is the El Salvador, El Salvador, the volcano. And it's just massive and it's beautiful. And it was an English-speaking congregation, but it was English from all points around the world. There were Caucasians and Africans and Italians, Spaniards, Latinos, Asians. In the crowd, there were Americans, Swedes, Guatemalans, Kiwis, whites, blacks, every shade in between. We sang an old Irish hymn to start the service, followed by modern Australian worship choruses. The service was a mixture of Lutheran and Reformed and Pentecostal elements. The welcome was given by a Canadian, yeah, a a German named Hans read the scripture lesson, and an American did the preaching. It was wonderful because it was so diverse, and for a little while I thought that I'd kind of stumbled into a little bit of heaven. Because I thought, this is what church should look like, with this kind of diversity, with this kind of varied background, and yet people are coming together like this to worship. And then, as it is prone to happen in church sometimes, the preacher started preaching and everything just sort of went down the toilet. (laughs) No. I had this warm, fuzzy feeling, and it just got vacuumed right out of me. In the spirit of full disclosure, preachers are infamously critical of other preachers. You must know that. And uh, truth be told, we don't like to listen to other preachers because we fall in so much in the, with love. The, we're so much in love with the sound of our own voice. And uh, but I think every craftsperson, no matter what you do, if you're a plumber or an artist, you have a critical eye for people that do the kind of work you do, and you know who's good at it and you love it and respect it, and you know who's not really good at it. It's not that this guy wasn't good at it. He was. He was an excellent preacher. It was his content that troubled me. He said this, and this was his summary of his sermon and the summary of his philosophy of life, he said. Real life is full assurance that you will go to heaven when you die. That is it. And at great risk of being misunderstood, I could not disagree more. I disagree because that is not how Jesus defined real life. Nor was it the gospel that he preached. Jesus defined real life not as an escape from the current world, but a life of trust in him in this current world, transforming this current world. Jesus' ambition was not to whisk away people to a faraway removed heaven. His ambition was to put heaven inside of people. And I'm not denying the afterlife or anything like that. 
I'm saying that Jesus did not put his emphasis there. He did not define the gospel that way. Rather, Jesus' preaching was this. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is here. It is now. It is today. The reign of God has been brought to bear in this present world. And everywhere the reign of God is embraced, it is evidenced by the repudiation of evil and injustice and oppression. These things cease where the kingdom of God prevails. So what bothered me so much about that day is that while we were sitting in a beautiful, extraordinary building, we were sitting in El Salvador. After centuries of colonization and exploitation by Spain, El Salvador achieved independence only to collapse into a series of civil wars. The worst of which was the last one, fought from 1979 until the early 1990s. 75,000 people were killed. A quarter of the population was driven from the country. When peace finally prevailed, the country, the, the smallest in Central America, was destroyed by Hurricane Mitch in 1998, then an earthquake in 2001. And today, with Honduras, its neighbor, El Salvador is the deadliest country in the world that is not a war zone. This speaks so much to the conversation that we are having in this country. I wish it was a conversation. It really isn't. It's more bluster from all sides with no one really coming to the table to solve any of the problems. Central America has only 8% of the world's population and it accounts for 40% of the world's homicides. I would grab my children and flee for my life every day. Why is it like that? Well, it's poverty. It's hopelessness. It's the massive importing and easy accessibility of weapons all coming from the United States. It is the lack of justice. It is the breakdown of the rule of law. No one has confidence in the judicial system there. There is gang violence for sure, but the gangs are symptomatic. The biggest problem is corruption. Rank, open, unabashed, and unashamed bribery. Jose Miguel Cruz, research professor at Florida International University, has put his finger on the foundational cause. Root out, he says, root out the corruption in the Central American ruling class and all the gangs and crooks will go down with them. So that is why that sermon that day troubled me. We're sitting here talking about heaven and how wonderful it's going to be. And I could look out a window and see gang graffiti clinging to the walls and the sidewalks just outside. We were building homes with people who were just trying to survive grinding poverty, making about $3 U.S. dollars a day. Every step we made had to be carefully calculated as to avoid bumbling into harm's way. And some of the bureaucrats who were propping up the systematic exploitation of the weakest parts of that society were sitting in that room with us, dressed in Prada, and raising their hands to Jesus with Rolex watches on their wrists. To speak from that comfortable position, saying to the poor, to the afraid, 
to those held hostage by violence and extortion, to the forgotten and the hopeless, to say to them, hey, real life is about checking out of this one for the next one when you die, is a mockery of what Jesus came and said and lived. Jesus stood up to read the Scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found that place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, the oppressed will be set free, and the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up that scroll. He handed it to the attendant and he sat down, all eyes in the synagogue. I like the old King James here were fixed upon him. And then he began to speak to them. And he said, the scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Jesus did not pick this text arbitrarily. It was the custom of Jesus' day to follow a sort of lectionary. And if you were raised, or if you come from a liturgical tradition, the Catholic Church, Lutheran Church, some Methodist church, certainly Presbyterian churches. They follow Anglican church. They follow the revised common lectionary. The scripture being read at Christ the King Episcopal Church today in Santa Rosa Beach is the same scripture being read at Westminster in Great Britain today. They follow the script. And in Jewish society, it was very much like that. On Sabbath, there was a set of scriptures read. And what was being read in Nazareth that day was the same thing being read at the synagogue in Cana, the same reading being read in Capernaum, the same thing being read down in Jerusalem. Jesus picks this day to show up because He is a troublemaker. He knows the Scripture reading. And Jesus would not have said, Would you please now turn in your Bibles to the prophet Isaiah? Paper would not be invented for another hundred years. Books would not be common for another 400 years. He was reading from a massive scroll that had to be put in place long before the crowd arrived because it was so large. A scroll of the prophet Isaiah was found at Qumran in 1952 with the Dead Sea Scrolls. The whole book of Isaiah is there. It is three feet wide. It is 24 feet long. It is 17 individual pieces of sheepskin leather sewn together with lace. It's not something you just put under your arm and went to church with on Sunday. So see the controversial Jesus in his context. An attendant, someone in charge of finding the right text for the right day has done his good work. The scroll is open on the desk to the prophet Isaiah, to the reading for the day. Jesus, returning home from his travels in the south and from his studies, out of respect, is asked to read. There is no inviting people to turn to their Bibles. There is no going rogue to find a different text so that Jesus can use the Bible he want, the way he wants to use it. There is simply the text for the day. And he didn't just read it. It's subtle. In English, it is extraordinary in the original. Verse 20, he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, 
and sat down, and all the eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Here's what he does. He reads, and he is then supposed to return to his seat. But instead, he rolls up the scroll, because it took hours to find that particular spot, so now he's lost it on purpose. There'll be no more reading today. He picks up the scroll and remarkably hands it to the attendant. The attendant, the keeper of God's holy word, now has the scroll in his possession. The reverence for the scripture is so high that it must immediately be put back into its box for protection. So now Jesus is occupying the attendant. And here he goes to find the box. And as he goes to find the box, Jesus sits down in the seat of Moses. The place where the teacher, the attendant, should be sitting to give the sermon for the day. We stand to speak. In Judaism, you sat down to speak. And the crowd is saying amongst themselves, what in the world is about to happen? I can see the little old ladies, they start to clutch their pearls and find their kerchiefs. Oh Lord, what is this young man doing? And the old men start talking about these millennials and how they're going to change and ruin the world. The teachers and the preachers in the crowd, like me, who are so critical of other people's preaching, we pull out our pencils. We're going to take notes so that we can rip it apart later chairman of the board of the synagogue of Nazareth, he's in the back, he breaks into a sweat. Everybody's going to be asking him how he could let something like this happen down at the synagogue. The seat cushion under his rear end is squealing because his rear end is getting so tight he doesn't know what's about to happen. Oh yeah, every eye in the place is on Jesus now. And he says, the scripture you just heard has been fulfilled today. And as they say in the sports world, the crowd went wild. What is it? What? They knew what he was saying. They understood what he was up to. The kingdom has arrived. It is here. It is now. It is good news to the poor. Release for the captives. It is not a far off, you have to die to enjoy it retirement plan. It is not a sky bucket rescue. It is not a magic carpet ride out of this world. From this unfair, unjust, brow-beating system that was tearing that society to shreds and crushing people like a steamroller. Jesus was serving notice that the gospel was breaking into the world in a revolutionary, redeeming way. Right here, right now, salvation begins. Things can, things will change. Some years ago, I told you about my friend Stephen. And some of you traveled with Stephen and myself to El Salvador several years ago. Today, Stephen works in the technical college system in Georgia, he teaches adult education, which he says is a fancy way of saying, I help people get their GEDs. But boy, it's good work, fantastic work. And he works primarily with Spanish-speaking adults. Stephen, before he came to that occupation, before he returned to the United States, 
was a missionary overseas for one of the largest mission organizations in the world. I should name them, I will not. He and his family served in Mexico City. He was sent to Kurdish Iraq after the first Gulf War. And most recently, his last position a few years ago, he worked at the Jibla Baptist Hospital in Yemen. The mission organization that owned the hospital decided that they would shut that operation down and close the hospital. Frankly, because not enough Muslims were becoming Christians. We aren't pouring millions of dollars into a place without seeing proper results, they told Stephen. Stephen met with the executives, as did most of the executive staff of that hospital, and they begged them to reconsider their position, that it wasn't always about how many people are going to church in an oppressive Islamic land and how many were making public professions of faith when such a profession would get you killed. That there were other ways of measuring success. And they told them, 40,000 people are being treated in this hospital every year. 400 major surgeries are being conducted in this hospital every year. Attitudes are changing. A part of the world that hated Americans and hated Christians was learning that it is really hard to hate someone when you are saving their children. And I will never forget, should I live a thousand years, what the executive said to Stephen as they begged for that hospital to remain open. And I quote, We have no obligation to the bodies of those whose souls are going to hell. And they closed the hospital. And all those missionaries came home. Yemen today is enduring one of the worst humanitarian crises seen in decades. Thousands are dying of malnutrition, of bombs, as Saudi Arabia bombs that country into the apocalypse. 80% of that population needs daily humanitarian assistance to survive. That is a fancy way of saying 80% of the population does not know where their next meal, drink of water, or dose of medicine, or shelter will come from. It is not the good news of Jesus Christ to say to such people, it will all be better in the sweet by and by. Shame, shame, shame on those who would say such a thing. It is not the good news to turn our backs on the poor, the outcast, the marginalized, the widow, the orphan, the hungry, the thirsty, the imprisoned, the foreigner, the immigrant, the aged, or the addicted. We must stay engaged, doing all the good we can do, where we can do it, for as long as we can do it. We join Jesus in turning our world upside down so that the world might be set right side up. It might only be in flashes. 
It might only come in spurts and starts and stops. We might have to fall back a step or two to gain a step or two. But as David Bosch says, God's reign, this kingdom of God, arrives wherever Jesus overcomes the power of evil. And that is where we join Jesus in His work. That is salvation. That is redemption. It's not just for a faraway, heart-playing, cloud-riding, hymn-singing, glory-praising, golden street heaven. I got mine, good luck to the rest of you. No, it is evil-conquering, world-changing, personal-transforming, system-crashing, status-quo-reversing in the here and now, where the sick are cared for, where the hungry are fed, where addicts are made whole, where the poor are relieved, Prisoners are set free. Children are loved and protected. The rejected are welcomed. The refugee is given opportunity. Peace brings an end to war. Greed is replaced by generosity. And power is substituted with sacrificial service. Here in the real world is where the kingdom of God has come. Now, not long after Jesus preached this sermon, Jesus called his first disciples. Fishermen, day laborers, poor. There was one Roman collaborator in there that was collecting money for the enemy. His name was Matthew. There was another near terrorist in there, and his name was Simon the Zealot. And Jesus had them all at the same table. What a great breakfast conversation that would have been. And he's teaching them this new way to live. Give up all these ways you think you're going to change the world. How you're going to make things right. How you think this is going to work this time. Come with me. You know what he said to him? Follow me. For the kingdom of God is at hand. They didn't have a seminary to go to. They didn't have a Bible college to go to. Nobody could sit and teach them the Bible stories of old. They didn't have 2,000 years of Christian history to reflect upon. All they had was that clear clarion call. The kingdom of God is at hand. Join me. Follow me. Go with me. And it was enough to turn the world upside down. And it is still enough today. Follow me.